I know in your bulletins it says we're going to turn to Mark chapter 10 and continue on through that series, but I made kind of a left-hand turn last night as I was finishing prep for that particular sermon, and we're going to go in a different direction this morning as it turns out. So I wanted to keep you on your toes with the one week that I have. <laughs> but um, if you want to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7, that's where we're going to be this morning, Second Chronicles chapter 7. Um, as I prayed through this week and as I was preparing and, and was nearly done with a sermon out of Mark 10, which I can hand off to Matt if he doesn't want to have to work next week, um, I started to think, uh, I, I really just continually felt this pull towards this passage. There's a lot going on in our country that kind of leads to that, um, and uh, I want to talk about that a little bit. But early, early last year, I had the opportunity to do a couple of workshops at our Prairie States Conference meetings in Memphis, Tennessee. And their theme was one that kind of stuck with me. Uh, the theme was, was, are you ready for a revival? If not, why not? That's a, that's a phrase that I've just been kicking around in my head. It seems like it comes back to me every so often. Um, ever since, really. Um, as I travel around, as I interact with other Christians, I hear a lot of talk about what our country needs. We need something. We need, we need really, what people are talking about is that we need revival. People desire what revival is. People long for it, even. People long to see the kind of movement of God that our nation and other people groups have experienced in years past, and and that some nations are experiencing even now. But when I hear people talking about a desire for revival, I'm not really sure. I'm not always sure that I know that they are really even sure what they're talking about, that they have a true frame of reference for what what they're talking about when when they say they want revival. Because it's a really big thing. Elwell's Dictionary of Theology suggests the classic understanding of revival is that of a period of unusual and heightened spiritual activity in a section of the church brought about by a renewing and empowering work of the Holy Spirit. That's the part people really understand. This brings about a new sense of the presence of God, especially in regards to to His holiness. This results in deeper awareness of sin in the lives of believers, followed by new joy as sin is confessed and forgiven, which is then followed by witness to others, both nominal Christians and outsiders, bringing them to a similar experience of confession, repentance, and faith. Now, I think if we were to come back to that theme that I mentioned earlier, that theme from that conference, are you ready for a revival? If not, why not? I think if we were to poll everyone here, we'd find that most people would say that they are most certainly ready for a revival. Most of us would probably say, bring it on. The reality is that most of us as followers of Jesus long for the kind of outpouring of God's Spirit that I just read about. Most of us would love a new sense of the presence of God and would love to experience a period of unusual spiritual activity. That's not even really a question, is it? Here's the thing, though. If we really want to see revival, God has actually left behind a prescription for us if we are to desire that outpouring of God's Spirit. A prescription that could lead us to revival. And we can find that in 2 Chronicles 7, where we're going to be this morning. Let's start in verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 7. Starts out, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. 
All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Amen. So as we catch up with Solomon, it's at a time where the nation of Israel was, they were really prospering. They'd just finished construction on the royal palace and it hadn't been that long since they'd finished construction on the temple. Really big accomplishments for this nation. These things that they dedicated to God, they were complete. For a people who had at one time been largely nomadic, who had been at one time held in the bondage of slavery by foreign rulers, who had at one time really only been able to dream of prosperity, this was their time. This was the time for the nation of Israel. This was the most stable time in the life of this this often damaged nation. And this was the time that God chose to come to Solomon, the king of Israel. And he came to him with a prescription for national, uh, national revival. And that's what we see here. All the elements of revival are present. Seeking God earnestly, repentance, an outpouring of God's Spirit at a time where probably the last thing on Solomon's mind was an outpouring of God's judgment or a time of disconnection with God. God also warns of that possibility as well. But he offers a way out. He offers a prescription to revive the people and their land. Now this probably wasn't necessarily completely a welcome thought for Solomon, at least on some level, because while God was providing this prescription for revival, He was also essentially telling Solomon that Israel's days of prosperity may not last. That a time of famine may be coming. And that the nation would, wouldn't stand as it did at that time forever. That this time of prosperity had a clock on it. In fact, for those of us who have read on through the rest of the Old Testament, we know that that, that, that time of prosperity wasn't going to last forever. You know it didn't. Because what do we see as we read on? We see the nation of Israel, and eventually the broken nation of Israel, falling further and further and further away from God. And further and further and further away from this time of prosperity. They had tough times ahead. What what else do we see? We see God continually chasing after them. Continually providing them with opportunities to turn back to Him. He sent them the prophets and messengers proclaiming repentance. He sent them leaders like Nehemiah and Ezra to ultimately lead them back to their home and toward renewed worship of Yahweh. And then eventually we know He even sent His Son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. But even here, as we come back into Second Chronicles, we see before any of that, before any of what we know now as history happens, God promises revival. 
He gives them direction on how to seek Him when that time of famine, that time of difficulty comes. In my job, I have the opportunity to travel a lot. Sometimes I call it an opportunity. Other times it can be kind of wearing. But in my travels, I have the opportunity to gauge kind of the overall mood of the church. I'm looking at you, Steve. That's right. (laughs) No, in my travels, I have the opportunity to gauge the overall mood of the Christian church. Um, I do spend a lot of time with Advent Christian churches specifically. But as I'm out working to build partnerships with other organizations, I kind of have the opportunity as well to have some great interactions with people from any number of different, different denominational traditions. And one thing I've seen, and it appears to be pretty consistent with most, most people, is that the national mood among Christians is just not good. It's not good. It's just not good. I think there's even a sense of defeat in the church right now. We're starting to get beaten down, starting to feel the tables turning on us. I don't think the election's helping us any. There's a lot, though, that's contributed to that. We've seen over the last decade or more a big shift in our nation's attitude towards Christians. We've seen a big shift in our nation's attitude toward morality. And ultimately, we've seen a a shift in our nation's attitude toward the concept of any God at all. It's changing. Things are changing right in front of us. It's hard. And not only have we seen some exodus from the church, but even in the church, the level of lukewarmity has increased. And I suppose that makes everything else that I just mentioned begin to make sense. Now, this isn't necessarily across the board. There are a lot of churches where excitement is still there. And there are a lot of churches where God's Spirit is clearly moving in some big ways. I actually feel like this church has got God's Spirit moving in some really exciting ways that you may not even notice. God really is moving still, folks. Even through those things that we don't necessarily like. Worldwide, in fact, if Jeff were here, Jeff Walsh, our World Outreach Director at ACGC, he'd probably tell you how amazing it is to daily see how God is moving all around the world. It's really exciting. What God is doing overseas, and even what He's doing here in the country, is a really exciting, it's a really exciting thing to see. Despite everything that's dragging down our mood, God is still clearly moving in some really exciting ways. But I understand why it's easy to get downtrodden. It's easy to focus on the negative. It's easy to focus on everything that's not going right and forget or even disbelieve God's promises. It's easy to do that when it feels like things are shifting the way they are. But folks, God's promises are still right there in front of us. And the good news, the good news is the promise for revival hinges on a need for revival. That's good news, actually. You don't have to revive something that's already been vived. That's, I know that's not a word. But that promise, like any promise, it hinges on need. It hinges on need. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, there it is. There's the presentation of the need. No rain. Locusts, pestilence. Here's the promise. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's the promise of revival. 
But what else do we see about that promise? We see that that promise is provisional. The promise is provisional. And again, I return you to our original premise. Are you ready for a revival? If not, why not? And, and this is where the why becomes kind of a big thing. Because ultimately, while God promises His people revival, that, promises, that promise hinges on our own personal preparation. It hinges on our obedience to Him. And this is perhaps why this why question Are you ready for a revival? If not, why not? Is actually a pretty loaded question. This is where this becomes big. Because for an outpouring of God's Spirit to happen and a healing of the land to take place, all those things that we really, really, really want to have, God calls us to a pretty significant time of preparation. And really, folks, anything worth doing really requires preparation. When I I was a kid... I actually didn't want to become a pastor. I may have told you folks this before. I didn't want, really want to work in the church at all. That was not my career goal. That wasn't what I really wanted to do. I wasn't really thinking much about God's call at the time. I was just thinking about what I really enjoyed doing. That was actually, being a pastor was the last thing on my mind. It was about the last thing I wanted to do. I was actually pretty terrified of public speaking. Um, I'm not naturally gifted relationally. I'm pretty much an introvert, and I don't always really do too well in social situations. So, you know, pastoral ministry, those things are really not compatible with somebody with my kind of personality and issues. In fact, um, when I was in high school, uh, I had to take a semester of public speaking. And I had just gotten a car, and public speaking was first period. So what I'd do is I'd leave for school on time so my mother didn't know what was going on, and I just didn't show up until second period. I drove around and went to McDonald's, whatever, and showed up second period. As you might expect, that caught up with me after a few weeks, and the guidance counselor and vice principal called me in, and that was a whole thing. But they eventually put me in a class called communication skills where I just had to have, you know, interactions with one or two people, which was actually easier to me than the idea of giving a three-minute speech of all things, which was the big finale to that class. Now, having heard all that, how many of you would like me to be the pastor here? I wanted to be a music teacher, actually. It was my goal to go to college for music, and it was my goal to one day teach and direct in a high school music program. Now, to achieve that goal, I had to audition to get into the school. And actually, I had to have a pretty lofty music resume to even get into the school I wanted to get into in the first place. Had I shown up for my college audition having never picked up an instrument, I would not have gotten very far in achieving my goal. Had I not prepared for my audition by practicing the piece that I had to play, I would not have gotten very far. It took years of intense preparation to get to the place where I was ready to audition to get into college, which I did. I was in the program for two years and then turned toward where God actually wanted me to be, and here I am now. But folks, the point is this. Anything worth doing really requires preparation. It requires preparation. It requires time. And folks, when it comes to the things of God, we're talking about things of extreme significance. Things of extreme worth. How much preparation ought we be putting into these things of such immense worth as our relationship with God? As important to me as getting into college was, my relationship with God is even that much more. How much time ought I be putting into my relationship with God? And in the case of revival, 
Like other aspects of our walk with Christ, there is a spiritual preparation that God prescribes. And this is where the question of, are you ready for a revival? If not, why not? That I keep asking you, it becomes so important. Because the things that God prescribes, they may take us down a peg or two. They may be hard. They may be more than we really want to take on. They may, in fact, take us out of our comfort zone. We may not be comfortable with the preparation for revival. And that's why for many of us, even though an outpouring of God's Spirit and a healing of the land sounds awesome, it's these other things, the preparation things, the things that may rip us at our core a little bit, they may become the reason that we may not really be ready for all that revival will bring. Because as we read on, God asks three pretty big things of His people if they are to experience revival. He asks them to humble themselves. He asks them to seek, pray and seek His face. And He asks them to turn from their wicked ways. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, if you're walking pretty close to God already, these things may come pretty naturally to you. They may. But if you're not walking close to God, or if there are some areas of your life that you're trying to hide from God, trying to hide from other people, these things can rip at your core. Because these things can be extraordinarily unnatural, difficult, and painful if that's where you're at. Actually, no matter where we're at with God, these things can be painful. Dealing with sin is painful, folks. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. You know, I'm not as athletic as I used to be. When I was a kid, I was pretty athletic. I was a soccer player. I was a goalie, actually. I played basketball, hockey. I was actually always in really great shape as a kid. But as I've gotten into my 30s, I've really begun to understand that's not as much the case anymore. It's not as easy to stay in shape as it used to be. Playing basketball, hockey, soccer, all of it is more of a strain than it used to be. Um, just a, a few weeks ago when, when Beth and I were in Maine, my brother and I played catch. We threw the baseball around, and I was using muscles I hadn't used in a while. And my back and my neck and my shoulders were really bothering me afterward. Um, you know, and I, I, I run and, and, and exercise a lot, but apparently I don't exercise my upper body enough because that really hurt. For a few days afterward, I could barely move without pain. Um, but I think for many of us, we find ourselves similarly spiritually out of shape, out of practice in these things, to the place where as we start to look at things like reading our Bibles, praying, confessing sin, real deal stuff, it's more painful for us because we're not in shape in doing it. Um, I got myself very out of shape a few years back. I've been working to try to get myself in a lot better shape the last year, year and a half. Um, but I wasn't running. I wasn't doing things. And when I first started exercising again and trying to eat well, it was really painful. It was really hard. It's gotten a lot easier as I've been doing it. Um, a lot easier than throwing that baseball was. But that's, that's a very clear parallel for us when we're talking about our spiritual shape. 
We find ourselves similarly spiritually out of shape, out of practice. And that's why, and that's the why not that we talk about when we're talking about are you ready for a revival? If not, why not? That's the why not. We haven't prepared our hearts. We haven't spent time doing spiritual exercises, so to speak. We haven't spent time in the Word, in prayer. We haven't spent time in confession of sin, in real, honest worship on our face before the Lord. So those things don't come naturally for us. They don't come easy for us. They come much, much harder for us. When we're talking about humbling ourselves, how many of us really humble ourselves on a regular basis? That's a harder one for me than a lot of the other things. We're not really used to seeking God's face in a way that puts His desires before our own, which is actually what truly seeking God's face means. We haven't really turned from our wicked ways. There's so many ways that we still fail as believers to the ways of the world. So many things that we ingest that, we're not, that are not in congruence with God's desires for our hearts. So as we begin to really examine our hearts fully, we start to realize how spiritually we're out of shape. And that if not, why not becomes much more clear why we're not ready for revival. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray and seek my face and will turn from their wicked ways. But if we as his people, and that's what we see here in verse 14, this promise hinges on his people doing these things. This isn't us expecting everybody in America to do these things. This is his people. And we are his people, his adopted sons and daughters. Under the new covenant, we talk, we've talked about this over and over in this church. If we as His people who are called by His name pray and seek His face, if we turn from our wicked ways, if we humble ourselves, all characteristics of revival, by the way, then He promises us some things. Because when we look, look beyond this, we see if my people are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. So in this we see three things. First, He will hear from heaven. One of the biggest questions that so many of us wrestle with on a regular basis is this. Is is God really listening? Is He really listening? This is a question certainly that all of us have probably wrestled with at some point or another. Because sometimes it can seem like when we pray, it can seem like we're kind of talking, maybe even talking to a brick wall, like we're not really getting anywhere, like we're just kind of talking at the air. It can feel like that sometimes. But what we find here is God offering assurance to Solomon, just as he did with David and Abraham, and as he did with Paul, telling Solomon, telling us, I will hear from heaven. The fact of the matter is God God does hear us. He does care enough to listen to our needs, to listen to our hearts. And in a time of revival, God's outpouring is so strong that there is no question that He hears us. The answer is right in front of us. But first we must seek His face. We must humble ourselves. We must turn from our wicked ways. In contrast to that, though, for many of us, our connection to God is largely superficial. It never goes any further than, Dear Lord, could you heal? maybe heal my sick aunt? Maybe just kind of help out with my golf game a bit. And oh yeah, if you could maybe help my wife drop 20 pounds. I've got a company party coming up and I'd really like to impress people. So if you could take care of those things, God, that would be great. Amen. For many of us, maybe that seems a little harsh, but those are what our prayers resemble. 
And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with bringing our daily concerns to God. That's not what that's about at all. But if that's as far as our time with God goes, is just bringing our requests to Him, the things that are bothering us that day, it's no wonder that we don't have the kind of experience of God's presence that, that we desire. It's no wonder we don't have the kind of relationship with God that we desire. Folks, no matter what, He will hear our prayers. He does hear our prayers. But the response, when we're truly seeking Him, when we're truly seeking the face of God, is so much more powerful than if we're just coming to Him with our own selfish thoughts. And that's it. He will hear from heaven. Second thing we see is that He'll forgive our sin. Folks, we all come to God as broken people. We do. We've all sinned. We've all done some form of evil. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that God cannot coexist with evil. So as a result, all of us have kind of a problem on our hands. We all find ourselves in a strained relationship with God. But He has offered us a solution through Jesus Christ. We know Jesus Christ came to heal us of that state. Many of us have made a commitment to Christ and have come into a healed state with God, which is really exciting. Jesus said Himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, and that's God, that was God's ultimate answer to our sin problem. That if we would turn from our sin and seek out a relationship with Him, that He would forgive our sin. And that's not only found in revival, it's found just in entering into a relationship with Him as well. But many of us, Many of us, even those who have been walking with Christ for a while, are still holding on to big things. We're not confessing it all. We're not turning from it all. We're not even acknowledging it all. And for revival to come, we must humble ourselves in true repentance before Him. True repentance before Him. We've got to put all of it, all of it at His feet. All of it. And that can be really painful. Again, it can kind of rip us at the core. But folks, what we know, what we know if we have followed Christ for a while, that what we do know is that no matter what it is, no matter what it is we're laying at His feet, He will forgive it. He will forgive our sin. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. It's such a gift we have in Jesus. The third thing we see, the final thing, is that He will heal. He will heal our land kind of brings us back around to where we started. It seems every day that I hear someone talking about how far we've fallen as a nation. How we've lost our moral compass. How we've turned our back on the values that made our nation great. And again, it's part of the defeat I think we're beginning to feel as the church. But folks, it, if there's one fault of the church that I've seen over just my few years of ministry, it's that we consistently point to the speck in someone else's eye to avoid dealing with a giant plank in our own. That's, that's something from Jesus there. And when we do that, we forget that changing our na- nation is really not our job. It's not our job to change this nation. It's not our job to sway an election. It's not our job at all. God doesn't tell us anywhere in Scripture to become political ac- activists overthrowing the government. In fact, that's what the disciples were looking for Jesus to be when He came. And he was the furthest thing from that. He asks us very plainly in this verse to simply seek his face, to turn from our wicked ways, 
and that he will hear, hear from heaven. He will forgive our sin. And he, he will heal our land. It's not our job to heal the land. We can be used as vessels, certainly. But it's our job to reach out with Christ's love in the community all around us. Yes, but only He can heal our land. Does that mean everybody's going to turn it around? Everybody's going to turn to, turn to God? Maybe. Maybe. We have no idea what God's going to do. Who knows? But what we do know is that God made a promise here. A promise to Solomon and a promise that still holds true today. That if we will humble ourselves and pray, and if we will seek His face and turn from our wicked ways, then He will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sin and He will ultimately heal our land. He will bring revival. That's huge. If the church in America today does these things, truly humbles ourselves before Him, does these things, He'll hear us. He'll bring revival. That is an amazing promise. But folks, if we really want revival, we've got to begin by looking unto ourselves. We've got to. Revival starts with God's people humbling themselves and truly seeking His face, seeking the face of God. This has been the the case throughout human history. In the late 1700s, for instance, marked the be- this marks the beginnings of a period called the Second Great Awakening. In 1787, Methodists and Baptists in Virginia experienced significant revival impulses. And the same was true in two Presbyterian colleges in the state, Hampton-Sydney and Washington College, from where revival spread to much of the state. In Britain in 1789, the republication of Jonathan Edwards' humble attempt to promote explicit agreement an extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion, that's a mouthful, marked the growth of an interdenominational and international movement of prayer that resulted in widespread awakening and revival. And also the beginnings of the modern Protestant missionary movement. Revival was widespread throughout the United States, Canada, in the British Isles, and in continental Europe as well. In the United States, the awakenings in Kentucky and the frontier areas were characterized by extremes of behavior, especially in the camp meetings, where thousands of remote and lonely people came together for extended preaching services that often lasted for days on end. And a new resurgence followed at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s, and also took hold in the 1830s. New missionary ventures took the gospel into the South Seas and into Southeast Asia, and many new initiatives for social reform were made in the United States and Britain. This was a global movement of the gospel, folks. A global revival in many, many ways. And it began with prayer. But not just any prayer. The kind of prayer and preparation that God prescribed to Solomon and the peoples of the nation of Israel. Prayer that was characterized by brokenness and humility. It was prayer that was characterized by urgency. Prayer characterized by repentance and holiness. Prayer that brought God's people back closer to Him. So I ask you again, are you ready for a revival? If not, why not? I think that answer can only be found as we search our own hearts. Because revival can come. Revival can come. But God's promise for revival is provisional. 
It is provisional upon His people. Humbly coming before Him. Seeking His face. And turning from their wicked ways. If you're ready for that, then you are ready for all that revival has to offer. All that God has to bring to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for guiding us through that heavy topic. <laughs> through this heavy passage, Lord, in Second Chronicles. Lord, thank You for this promise that You offered to us through Your, your time with Solomon. This recorded time that you, you made part of Your holy scriptures. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way You've guided us through it this morning. Lord, I confess certainly that there are things in my life that I need to deal with. There are things probably in all our lives that we need to deal with. Fears and sin that, that all of us are struggling with each and every day. Lord, we bring these things to You. Lord, I know I ask You to deal with me. I pray that that's the, the, what's on the heart of all of us as we're here this morning whether it's coming to You for the first time or it's just really, truly laying things before You in a way that we as Your people have never done. Lord, we ask You to guide us in that. Lord, that we, not just so that we can experience revival, but Lord, so that we can draw ourselves closer to You. And if that drawing closer to You represents revival, Lord, we say bring it on. We are so thankful for you and for all that you bring to us. Lord, guide us and lead us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.